before we go. Oh. Okay, so we were talking about how the toy saga fed into the bankruptcy saga, and, like, Marvel oh, had, yeah. like, all these toys and stuff. I wanted to share, because I've talked about it with you before. Oh, is it your, is it your Mayday? It's my Mayday. Uh... Is she mint? Is she mint in the box? Well, well, I've kept the box, but no, oh, it's, not okay. it's not meant. Okay, uh, I was about to her... judge you for for not having ever taken her out of her box. Well, I've that's had how her you get those. a that's how you get a villain, Brooke. Haven't you seen Toy Story too? Oh, I know, but like, um, I, I've had her since I was uh, seven years old. Of course, <laughs> she's been out of the box, but I kept the box because I, I I'm that kind of kid. That's very um, smart, actually. And also, also, uh, if you can see it right there. Toy Biz! Yep, that tracks. Welcome to Behind the Yellow Boxes, your one-stop comics history podcast. I'm Steph, your co-host and friendly neighborhood archivist. And I'm Brooke, your not-so-friendly, self-declared comics expert. We're two comic nerds with a lot of opinions, and we think it's important to know your history if we want to understand why comics are the way they are. So, Steph, I heard you had even more to tell us about 1990s Marvel financial drama. I... I sure do. So, I guess the most important question to start off with is, did you have fun... If by fun, you mean, did I get pushed further and further away from capitalism and the way that the ultra-wealthy treat things that genuinely matter to people up to and including livelihoods of people working for them as a game of, game of keep away? Then sure, I had lots of fun. Oh, no. Yeah, so it has been a while since an episode has relied so heavily on a single source, but this one did. So up front, going to mention Comic Wars, Marvel's Battle for Survival by Dan Raviv. It was a major help for this one, not only for explaining the ins and outs of the people involved, but also for explaining things about the stock market and bankruptcy courts to me, which helped my understanding of this. It will help me hopefully explain this stuff to both Brooke and you, the listeners, without having to actually explain those things too much all right well so thank you first of all to dan reviv and now we have to backtrack to where we left off at the time of the last episode we were in 1994 and the guy who is not hellboy had just bought heroes world okay so Flashing back a little further to pre-1994 and comics distribution. So, in the days before Google Drive and the cloud and email made it so that if you wanted to print something, you could print it in multiple places all over the world. A big question for distribution was always, how you would take your product that you had just printed and share it with people all over the country and or world. 
And as such, comics created this system of distributors. There were dozens of them, some big, some small, some worked only in, in either a met major metropolitan area or a state or two. Some did only DC, some did only Marvel. It was a real patchwork at the time. And there were a few big ones, but there were a lot of options. So some of these distribution markets would, like Steph said, they would focus on specific areas. It was kind of like how newspapers cover a certain specific area. Where if you live in, say, a medium-sized city, you could get the county paper, the city paper, and sometimes even like a statewide paper. Kind of like uh, in Kentucky, the statewide pe paper would be something like the Lexington Herald. And a regional distribution would be something like the Big Sandy. This is also how you would get specific later influential comics that would only be published in certain areas. Like The Tick was originally only published in the Boston metropolitan area. Yeah, so these distributors, they had each had an individual relationship with Marvel and, and, and DC, but Marvel's what we're going to be focusing on today, and also with their, with, uh, with their, with the individual comic shops. We're moving further and further away from the old market where you would pick up your comic book at a newsstand or something like that. So instead, we're moving more and more into these specialized hobby shops, which we talked about briefly last time. So these owners of these comic shops have relationships with their distributors. And if a distributor doesn't deliver on time, does, like, or just cheaps out on products or has a weird policy, they have options. They could say, well, no thanks. I'm going to go off and I'm going to go take my business elsewhere because I have options and this was a kind of you know I'm not going to say it was an ideal system but it was a, it was a system that was working for a lot of people a couple of groups were rising to the top or were larger than others the three biggest distributors were Capital City Comics Diamond Distributions and Superheroes World, which had to get renamed to Heroes World because Superheroes is a joint trademark by DC and Marvel. Which, of course, says nothing negative about the trademark system whatsoever. Nothing. Nothing at all. But yeah, so we had those three big ones. We had a whole bunch of smaller ones. And, you know, it was a system. It was in place. Now, here is the thing. Back to 1994, Ron Perlman bought Heroes World and made it Marvel's exclusive distributor. This was a big deal because suddenly these smaller distributors can't carry Marvel. They no longer have the ability to buy it. They are suddenly left offering only DC and independent properties like Dark Horse or Image. And while those things aren't an insignificant share of the market, Marvel at the time, where is my figure? Uh, Marvel around this time is looking at a little less, but in the, 19, in the early 1990s, before Heroes World, had a 70% market share of the comics industry. 
So suddenly, these smaller distributors and even larger distributors like Capital City and Diamond can't carry what is 70% of the comics that people are buying. It's also worth pointing out here that while, of course, each comic publisher would be concerned with their own independent output and sales, there had basically been this communal system going on where everybody used all the publishers they could for decades. It was just kind of an unwritten rule that everybody played along. And to suddenly have one of your biggest players uh, kind of just throw a wrench into a system that had been working for ages seemingly for no reason other than to financially hurt and bury competition, it was a declaration of war. It really was. And this was, the market was already not in the best of shape. And everything was already having issues. And then on top of that, like... Heroes World was not prepared for this. Heroes World was not prepared for be suddenly becoming the only distributor for the largest part of the comics community. The co like all around them, the rest of the distributors are collapsing because suddenly they can't carry huge amounts of comics. And then because of that, if you can't, if you are a small comic store owner and you need to get Marvel because your people, your customers want Marvel, you suddenly have to go, okay, well, I've only got so much money. I can't afford to hire, to hire Diamond for only Marvel. And then this other person who used to sell me everything, but now only sells me a very small percentage of my stock, I'm going to have to go to a, to a larger company who might have, who used to focus on DC only. It was a create it created this artificial market crunch. Some people tried to fight back. Some comic stores actually refused to carry Marvel. This caused both individual comic stores to fold and it caused a lot of small distributors to fold. It was kind of a self-defense mechanism. DC and pretty much every other every other comic company that was left fled to diamond distributions, which was the largest one that was not Heroes World left. All of them signed exclusive contracts with Diamond in hopes to push back against Marvel and the harm Marvel and Heroes World was doing to the industry, which left us with a functional duopoly, which a duopoly is not good. It is still infinitely better than a monopoly. But that was what we were left with. We had gone from a very large, diverse market of distributors to a duopoly. It's worth noting that while a few of the independent uh, independent companies, such as Image, um, Dark Horse, and the, at the time, lesser-known Mirage Studios, or IDW, uh, were able to weather this by basically working with DC to sign exclusives with Diamond, this killed so much of the indie scene, which had been flourishing from the 80s through the 90s, thanks to a lot of this prestige market that we were talking about last time. 
And this really, really caused the market to begin its collapse. It was not the full collapse. The full collapse is generally agreed to have properly happened in 1996. So we're heading into 1995 as this is happening because the Heroes World deal happened towards the end of 1994. But everyone knew it was coming in 1995. So Heroes World was not only taking over the market, driving small stores and small distributors out of business, causing massive problems for the industry as a whole, they also weren't good at their job. They were late. They did not have the capacity to print and distribute all of these comics. They had a non-returnable policy, which was new to the industry at the time, although it's pretty standard now. This, I like, used to be able, if, you, if a comic did not sell, you returned them. You just sent them back. That's really not a thing that happened after 1995. I personally can remember being, again, I was a young child, but I, you know, I grew up around comic books. I grew up going to comic book stores. And I do remember well into the 2000s, this reputation of Marvel will never have something shipped when it's supposed to lasted for decades. And a thing that will lead up to as a result of this Marvel's Heroes World distribution no return model, it is why the market becomes so dependent on pre-orders. Because if you cannot return them, you are only going to buy what you know you can sell. And so overwhelmingly, it creates this system which is closed. You do not carry an inventory that you do not think you can sell. Maybe you'll overorder by like 20 issues, but that's not much. And it means that if you are a new fan or want to pick up something casually, it can be very difficult actually because your store only pre-orders what they can sell. And so if you are a young female fan who doesn't do the pre-order system because you don't go in often enough and you want to pick up, say, the new Wonder Woman book, you might not necessarily find any on the shelves because you're in an overwhelming, you're in a market that doesn't buy a lot of that and your person might not have ordered many copies. I know for uh, my comic distributor uh, that was in my hometown, basically they pre-ordered Spider-Girl issues just because they knew I was coming in every week. Uh, they didn't really have anything extra. And if for whatever reason, I was late on getting that issue, and that issue sold to someone else because, again, it was a comic book store across the street from a elementary school that let its middle schoolers out at lunch. I basically just didn't get my Spider-Girl issue that month. It emphasizes how you need a relationship with your local comic st book store because it's all so dependent. We 
brought up in the last episode on this topic that I, like many women, would have negative experiences at this store. Not that I think it was the goal of the people to set out and give basically humiliating experiences to women and children that came into the store, but the environment was just naturally there, and it kind of fostered itself. It was basically impossible for me to get many of my female uh, friends at the time to go to the comic book store with me, because why would they want to? They felt awkward and picked on, which they were. I was. But, you know, I was obsessive enough and had grown up around comics enough that I just kind of went with the flow. <laughs> and this is all a side effect of how this model was set up, which it was not the end goal. It was not the intention. The reason Ron Perlman bought this was to save money to create these closed systems where they didn't need to spend the money on dealing with stuff like the all the other distributors and ron perlman kind of like he was a guy who was always interested in the quick buck rather than the long-term investment this is a known thing about his strategy he borrows money in the short term to pay off to like make to inflate products artificially and briefly and this is actually important i'm not just bringing it up to complain about him uh but one of the things he did to try to like you know make up for the heroes world disaster was he bought malibu comics because they had a really good printing system they had a printing system that could run for 24 hours a day and printed at a much faster pace than marvel's own printing capacities so Malibu Comics's purchase was entirely to try to make up for the difference in Heroes World's epic fails of distribution. And how exactly did that work out for them? Well, you know, they still had their bad reputation. It, they still were not really able to handle the load but, you know, it kept him afloat a little longer into, 1990, into the proper part of 1995, the end of the first fiscal quarter, when Marvel had to report its first loss since Ron Perlman had taken over the company, which was a huge deal on Wall Street. Like, we were just kind of like, yeah, it's a comic book company. Of course, it's in the red. But this was a huge deal at the time. Uh, comic book distribution was down, sales were down, they had no other alter they had basically no other revenue stream. And so to try to prevent this kind of like huge issue, especially because a whole bunch of debt was about to come due, as I mentioned last time, Ronald Perlman had been purchasing a lot of other companies, co uh, comic book companies, uh, card trading companies, sticker companies, and those were all very poorly timed purchases. In 19... Need my, need my uh, thing here. So he purchased uh, 
one of the real big issues was he bought he bought all of these companies at top price. He did not try to negotiate. He did not wait till the bubble was at a low point. He bought them top of the market prices. This was his, this was just what he did. And he bought them all on Marvel's dime. So all of this was going into Marvel's debt, not his personal debt, Marvel's debt. And he bought a very problematic company called Skybox. Skybox was a trading card company who had a huge deal with Major League Baseball. And do you know what happened in the 1990s with Major League Baseball? A strike! So, considering my very much in-depth lack of knowledge on sports, I'm going to assume that that probably fed into the trading card market. Yeah, because if the players aren't playing, you don't print cards for them. And additionally, they also had a huge deal with major with um, the National Basketball Association and that ha- and the license to print those cards was very expensive. Licensing deals are a huge chunk of revenue for pretty much everything that lic- that does anything. And actually this was this is very important for a simple reason that Marvel at around this time had lost a lot of their licensing stuff. Part- their namely their licensing for action figures. Enter a new character in our saga. A very, very important character who has not been mentioned yet. Isaac Perlmutter. Isaac Perlmutter was and remains another millionaire business, millionaire, billionaire businessman tycoon. And he was known for doing this, a different model than the other billionaire we've mentioned today. His model was buying companies that were going out of business, buying up their stock, and then selling their stock, and then just getting rid of the company. So people who remember the chaos and disappointment that was the purposeful closing of Toys R Us a few years ago by a hedge fund company, this is the same method. Yep, that's pretty much exactly it. He, only he didn't work with a hedge fund. He did all of this himself. So he bought a small but popular action figure toy company known as Toy Biz. And he was surprised it was in better shape than it looked, basically. But he noticed that a lot of their overhead went to licensing fees particularly licensing fees to for Marvel action figures. So he knew Ron Perlman and some of Ron Perlman's guys through their local tennis club, you know, as rich people do. And, and he approaches them and says, I've got an idea for you. It would be cheaper and faster for you guys 
to just work directly with one toy company and it would be cheaper for me not to have to pay licensing fees. Why don't I give you guys a portion of the stock shares for Toy Biz, making you guys investors in it and pro and you profit off what we do and we don't waive and we waive licensing fees. So Toy Biz gets kind of folded into this model and it's and Toy Biz as it happens remains profitable. It is basically the only part of Marvel that remains profitable at this time. It is a separate it is a separate thing. It is not owned by Marvel, but they're partners-ish. They're like sibling companies. So to try to like prepare, so Ron Perlman eventually starts looking at the fact that it is profitable and he realizes he can solve a lot of his problems at Marvel by full on folding toy biz into Marvel. He can essentially, he, cause toy biz was actually on the stock market and that's like a big deal to be to fold in a company that's also in the stock market. I can't explain it. I don't understand it. That's what it is. It's a big deal and investors and banks like it. So the idea was to completely merge Toy Biz and Marvel into one business and then it would make look Marvel would look better as a company. As you do. So Uh, I don't know if we're going to keep this or not, but I do want to point out that it was also around this time, there's this weird legal jargon, this strange tax law, where shipping toys that are meant to be human are taxed at a higher rate for shipping through uh, U.S. mail than toys that are non-human based and Marvel actually filed a lawsuit to have mutants not counted as human under this law and it won so under the US government tax law mutants are not human and Magneto was right <laughs> Wow, that derailed my brain. Uh, yeah. But so as all of this was happening, all of Marvel's debt, Marvel had something, like, Marvel had crazy debt from all of these, from all of these purchases. We're looking at well over $350 million worth of debt at this time. May I just say, Jesus. Correct. And if you're thinking, oh, geez, man, Ron Perlman must be really out his money. No. No, he's not. Uh, so how he accumulated a lot of this debt was by he sold these things called junk bonds from Marvel subsidiary companies. These were companies that weren't Marvel, but had like Marvel something something in front of them. He sold them. These things would have 12% interest to be cashed in five years down the line. This is a way to raise quick money. He made the money. 
He used it to pay off whatever thing he was paying off. Like he would use this to purchase one of the companies he was looking at. And then he had would have a couple hundred million dollars extra. I think... Do I have that number written down? And again, just to remind our listeners, this is somehow legal. This is all completely legal. Uh, yes, here we go. So yeah, he, we're looking at something like a $15 million profit off these things. And what does he do with this? Very, actually, my bad. That was the wrong number. It was a $252 million profit. So what does he do with this money? Does he invest it in Marvel? Does he give the artists and writers health insurance? Does he hire a new and expanded staff? Does he improve the distribution? No, he pockets it. He literally pockets the whole thing. He has more than 10 times remade his money on his investment with Marvel. And the same thing with Perlmutter and his investment in Toy Biz and Marvel. They have remade their money dozens of times over. They have made so much money off these things. But Marvel is in crippling debt. Marvel does not get any of the profits of this Wall Street bullshit. This Wall, Wall Street bullcrap. They don't get it. They, in fact, are in crisis mode. People are getting fired, both editors and employees. The corners are being cut. A crunch is happening. But, you know, the people in charge made huge amounts of money off them. Their comics are selling well. All of these decisions, they didn't do anything. Well, they did some things that could be argued weren't good decisions. Things like, which we we'll, might talk about later. But, you know, so many of the worst decisions are the ones that they have no say in. They're not even in the room for. Not even people like Stan Lee are in the room for it. And they're the ones holding the bag. So the banks are coming calling. The banks are saying, hey, uh, you owe us $350 million and you guys aren't even being profitable, so we're not going to like be nice to you. We want our money. And so Pearlman had a solution. He was going to do stuff with stocks. And I'm not going to bother to explain it to you. He, he was going to basically buy out stock that everybody had at very low he was going to flood the market with new stock that he would get a huge portion of in exchange for his financial contribution and he was basically going to dilute everybody's holdings in marvel not his own but everybody else's these investors were going to go from owning 80% of Marvel to 35% of Marvel. And they weren't happy about it. It was, and additionally, as it happened, I got one guy was a pretty big investor in Marvel. He owned one third of Marvel. And he really, really hated Perlman. Can't imagine why. Yeah, no, I mean, there's a lot of reasons to. Uh, introducing our very, uh, one of our last players in the game, Carl Icahn. Carl Icahn, another billionaire. He's literally doesn't have any stake 
in anything. He's just really rich. And he basically saw that Ron Perlman was doing some shading accounting and basically said, something's up here. Marvel's either worth a lot more than he is saying or a lot less than he is saying. And I want to become in charge of Marvel so I can look at their books and figure out what is up. That was like basically his entire plan. So he goes to this investors meeting where Perlman is pitching his own, I'm going to buy Marvel. I'm going to make a lot of money. You're all going to get screwed, but you're going to have to take it because otherwise the company will go bankrupt and you guys won't have anything. The argument is basically better to own 35% of a company that is remaining rather than 80% of nothing. And then Ikan comes up and he's like, hey, you're full of crap. I'm going to offer to buy out Marvel. And Perlman goes, stares him right in the eyes and says, no. And he takes Marvel to bankruptcy court. And it's a nightmare. Well, I think given everything we just went through, given the tumultuous nature of finances, but especially finances that are wrapped up in this sort of scandalous, almost petty drama. Uh, It's kind of nice to remember that for all the negative side effects, comics did withstand it all somehow. Somehow. Some way. (laughs) Yep, we made it. And somehow, despite their best efforts, we're here. And you, the listeners, are here. And even and you know we we're having a we well maybe we're not having a good time but we're having a time (laughs) (laughs) so i guess sort of in a celebration of survival instincts and coming out the other side uh that kind of takes us into wrapping up this episode with our comic book recommendations Yeah, so research kind of ate my life this week. Uh, So I'm going to go default to an old favorite of mine, which, like, Brooke wrecking Cassandra Kane was really a long time coming. Uh, So my wreck this week is Batgirl, Stephanie Brown, written by Brian Q. Miller. Stephanie Brown is a longtime favorite character of mine. Uh, And this is her first and only solo series. It tells the story of Stephanie Brown, the girl who was Spoiler and Robin previously, taking up the mantle of Batgirl and figuring out what it means for her, especially with the elevated attention that being Batgirl brings her from inside and outside the Bat family in the process. It's a fun series, a really easy read, and honestly, it's a really great entry point into the larger world of Gotham City and honestly comic books in general. The first new trade covers issues 1 through 12, and it's one of my favorite books to read and reread over and over again, and I highly recommend it. Uh, For a modern recommendation, or slightly more modern, uh, I wanted to highlight a product of the bankruptcy saga, or more specifically, a product of the turnaround and uh, the successes that followed after such a dark period at Marvel. Um, while there are plenty of criticisms, both Steph and I could levy at Marvel in their output at the turn of the 21st century, 
I think one of the greatest positive impacts on comics in decades came from Ultimate Spider-Man and the creation of beloved wall-crawling icon Miles Morales. The first 18 issues of the 2011 Ultimate Spider-Man series were amazing, solid milestones in the comic landscape and gave rise to a hero who it's now really difficult to imagine the Marvel Universe without. Miles Morales isn't just Spider-Man, he becomes a paragon for what it means to have responsibility, great expectations, and legacy in a world where the trail had already been blazed by the now recently deceased Peter Parker. Given Miles' character and origins has had tweaking in the years since his initial appearance, there are some aspects of his character that can feel a little foreign to fans, more familiar with his recent appearances and the film debut in Into the Spider-Verse. That being said, I still think the gorgeous artwork by Sarah Pacelli brings Miles to life in a way that is underappreciated these days, and love it or hate it, writer Brian Michael Bendis really does have an eye for original character creation. His foundations for a character are very strong on the onset. So I would recommend the first few arcs of Ultimate Spider-Man, or, if you want something even more modern that fits more with Miles as he's known today, uh, Scholastic uh, just released an amazing graphic novel, Miles Morales Shockwaves. It's adorable. It takes from both his comic book history and the Into the Spider-Verse film version of Miles. It's just super cute. It's an all-ages book. Uh, and, of course, as a teacher, I love anytime either... Uh, the Big Two, or uh, other indie publishers focus on Scholastic imprints to uh, really build on the reader base that they should have been working all these years to build on anyway. And there you have it. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to support our Patreon, you can find us at patreon.com slash yellowboxespodcast. Or you can leave us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. Those really help us reach more people. You can also subscribe or tell a friend to spread the word. If you've got an episode suggestion, have some favorite va variant covers from the 1990s you want to share with us, or just really like comics, you can tweet us at, at yellowboxespod or email us at yellowboxespodcast at gmail.com. Special thanks to Kevin McElwood for the music that serves as our intro and outro. Feeling good. Thanks for listening. Uh, my real goal in life is um, to become Angela Lansbury. I that's think. The, yeah, that, that's the star from Murder, Murder She Wrote. Right. Mm -hmm. Where? Yep, that tracks. Where Jessica, as she is known in the show, where I live on my own, I publish murder mystery books, and Sherlock Holmes on the side because A cab. You know, I dig it.